Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, well, good morning. Glad you guys are here today. Thanks for being here. Uh, if you're visiting with us, I'll give you a special shout out. My name is Cody, one of the pastors here. So last week we um, we finished up a series that we had been in, WWJD, and next week we start a new series. In fact, it's not just a series that we're starting next week, and although it is a series, it is going to be our theme for this next year. It's kind of where God is calling us to and what we feel like we're supposed to be doing. And so if you are a regular attender of our church, you don't want to miss that weekend, okay? We don't think you should ever miss, but that's like one of those that you definitely shouldn't miss, so make sure you're here for that. But this weekend, we get to do something a little different, is occasionally we'll have people stop in and we'll get to talk about their story and how, you know, Jesus is coming to their life or some specialties that they may have. And so that's what we're going to do this weekend. So our, our last person that we had was um, an Asian gangster who spent 10 years in prison. This is pretty much that same story, okay? Well, actually, I'm going to have you introduce yourself. Yes, my name is Guillaume Bignon. Yeah, and that's why I didn't introduce him. Uh, I've just been calling him G throughout the weekend, so this is G. And uh, I actually heard his story about 10 years ago on a podcast, and I thought, man, I would love to have this guy at our church one day so you can hear his story, because it, there's all different kinds of ways to come to faith, and for me, I resonated a lot with his because of his journey. And so he wrote a book, and the book is titled... Confessions of a French Atheist. Confessions of a French Atheist. So he has gone from being an atheist to not only becoming a Christian, but also a theologian. And so I want to talk through that story of kind of how all that took place. And so why don't you just give us a little bit of background? Yes, uh, I guess we don't have the exact same story with the Asian gangst gangster. I have not been to jail yet. But I am calling you G for the <laughs> yes, weekend, so that, that's that is good. So, close. so that worked. That yeah. works. But uh, while we don't have the same story, I bet you we have the same God. Yeah. So this is kind of my invitation as well as I share my story. Um, that you may not have the same story I do have, but we have the same God. And so try to figure out, try to learn and connect to the same God who caught me in the ways that he's dealing with you as well. Um, so when, you know, tell my upbringing, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so I, I grew up in France uh, as my accent uh, readily betrayed. Okay, he told me last night, and I thought this was hilarious. He said when he first moved to the United States, he said, I don't think anyone's even going to notice that I have an accent because my English is so good. <laughs> So yeah. I genuinely believe that. So how could they possibly tell? I don't understand. Yeah, I, I couldn't quite place it, but now that you said France, yeah, now correct. I got it. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. where I came yeah. from. So I grew up in France uh, in the suburbs of Paris uh, in a wonderful home. Uh, I was the second of three. I had an older brother and a younger sister. Um, and we, were all, um, we grew up in the Catholic Church. Uh, this is what we do, um, kind of a thing, but not really what we believe. So this was... Uh, more of a tradition, maybe a little bit of superstition, but not really a life conviction that, yes, there is a God and that we are following him. Uh, it was more of an occupation on Sunday morning that would uh, take our, way, our time away from the TV or, or, or games, uh, but not, not really a life conviction. So as soon as we were old enough to tell our parents that we didn't believe any of it, we stopped going to church and our lives were not very different. It was just, hey, we are, we're not doing that anymore. And what age was it that you kind of said, I don't not only believe, I don't even believe in God. Yeah, so I mean, not believing in God is not even a question I was asking myself. So like, as early as like 10, 12, uh, it was obvious to me that I didn't really believe those things. 
Um, but the age at which we were able to tell our parents, yeah, we're, we don't believe this and we should stop going was probably in the late teens, um, okay. roughly. And so at that point you decided, all right, I'm going to make my life about, and this is a lot of overlap between French culture and American culture, is I'm going to start chasing some of my dreams and pleasures and things like that. Yeah, so this was what I set out to do to just uh, live a good life. I, I thought, uh, well, first I needed to provide for the good life, so I studied. Uh, I was a bit of a nerd in school, so I studied math, physics, engineering, uh, and I ended up being a, a software engineer, so developing software of in finance um, and um, that would provide for a life of seeking for happiness and, and joy uh, and I found that in a number of avenues uh, one is that I, I was playing volleyball because I was somewhat small before when I was little um, but after that puberty hit uh, with a vengeance and uh, I grew up to be six feet four and to jump three feet high and so I was uh, scouted to play volleyball and I ended up playing in National League so every weekend I would travel all around the country to play volleyball games uh, and found a lot of joy in that. Um, so that was volleyball, uh, music, I was, uh, when I was little I played the piano uh, and then uh, afterwards turned into playing the keyboard and it sounded to be really cool, started to play in a band, so I played in a rock band and I lived the dream uh, of being a rock star, at least in my head. Uh, we, we were recording music, playing on stage and it was very enjoyable. Uh, so again, seeking my own fame and, and, uh, and joy. Um, so music, volleyball, uh, engineering, and then one other important avenue to seek happiness for a French atheist my age um, was the area of relationships. So I was pursuing women, uh, and I started to be successful enough, so sometimes for long uh, relationships, sometimes just for a night. Um, and my standards for relationships were clearly not uh, compatible with a Christian understanding, but for the French environment, it seemed very normal. Uh, and this was another avenue in which I was uh, seeking joy uh, yeah. in life. So you're, you're kind of living maybe a typical life for here in the States and, and there as well. And, and life is okay, right? You're in your early 20s. You're kind of enjoying these things. And Part of it, and this is the part that may you may not like this part of his story, is you went on vacation. And I've learned what a big deal vacation is because you have how many weeks in France? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Americans usually don't want to ask, but uh, you know, live in, in blissful ignorance. But in France, it's illegal to have less than five weeks a year of vacation. So that's the strict bare minimum that you can have. Uh, the average is actually seven weeks per year, and my brother has nine. So yeah. that gives you an idea of the amount. And my of response was, that's why we're not number one. <laughs> you know, that's why we're the best. Is <laughs> get back to work, <laughs> you know? Uh, anyway, sorry. Is that rude? Is that rude? Do you, you know my last name is French, right? Is that right? Yeah, but we kind of change it to be a little bit more white trash, so it's Surratt. <laughs> yeah. That uh, works. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Um, so one of the places you went is on vacation. You thought you were just going to have a good time, but it turned out to be a little bit more than that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is the turning point. Uh, so we went on vacation in the Caribbean uh, on the island of St. Martin, which is wonderful. It's such a lovely paradise on earth, basically, like white sand and turquoise blue water. And we went there to enjoy the, the beach, play a little bit of beach volleyball, um, just have a good time. Uh, I was there with my brother, and my uncle uh, had moved there a few years back, so we went to stay at my uncle's and enjoy our time for a few weeks uh, on this paradise island. And there's one day that we went to a bit more of a distant beach, uh, and we didn't have the car for the day, so we were dropped off at the beach, and we were basically going to have to find a way to come back to the house uh, without the car. 
and uh, my brother suggested that we should just hitchhike uh, to come back to the house. Uh, I had never hitchhiked once in my life before that, and I have never done it since, but for that one time, we started hitchhiking to come back to the house. And so we put our thumbs up, and uh, a few minutes into this, there's a small car that stopped with two American tourists in it. Uh, one was from Miami, the other one was from New York. Uh, they were both very attractive. The, the one from New York was a former model and actress. So immediately the eyes uh, are caught. It's like, oh, this is a big deal. Let's, let's try to connect. Um, and the thing is, they didn't stop to pick us up. They stopped because they were lost on their way from the airport to their hotel, and they were asking for directions. <laughs> so we walked by and said, like, so where are you going? And as it turns out, the hotel they were going to was literally next door to the house of my uncle. Which would have been the answer no matter where they were staying. Yes. Right? Oh, wow, that's yeah. unbelievable. I know. So what a coincidence. It looks very suspicious, <laughs> but, but we could prove it. We were actually going to that house. <laughs> um, so we said, well, you know, we'll tell you where it is if you pick us up. And so they agreed, so they picked us up. Uh, and so we had that drive to the, their hotel to try to make a connection, to start flirting, you know, to insist on the French accent, it's working out. And, uh, and we start to make that connection, and uh, to, we made plan to see them again uh, while they were on the island. And long story short, I ended up in a relationship with the one from New York. Um, and... It would have been really exciting if not for two things that she shared with me, which became immediately huge problems. The first one, she told me that she believed in God. Uh, she said she was a Christian, and to me it was like, whoa, uh, that's intellectual suicide. And I have no interest in going back into that mess, so that, that's a huge problem. And the other thing, which would be even worse if that was even possible, is that she believed in abstinence before marriage, which was... <laughs> something I absolutely did not want either. Uh, and so those two things were highly problematic. Um, nevertheless, I flew back to Paris, and she flew back to New York, and I thought, this is still kind of very exotic. She was so attractive, and it's, the whole thing felt like a Hollywood movie of meeting randomly. I think I've seen this story on Hallmark before. Yeah, I've seen it. So yeah. the whole thing felt so much like a movie. I was like, well, we need to make this work and figure it out. But for me, that meant trying to convince her to leave religion behind so that we could get together and be happy. Um, and so this is the next step that I took, which was to try to explain to her why all of this is nonsense and she should let it go. Um, but I realized if I'm going to be convincing her that Christianity is nonsense, I need to at least understand what she even believes. And so I picked up a Bible. And I, I dusted it off because I hadn't touched the Bible in many years. Uh, but I opened it and I started to read the New Testament, uh, starting with the Gospels. And there what I found was surprising. Uh, I expected it to be super boring like I remembered from my childhood. And instead I discovered a, a fascinating character in the person of Jesus. Um, I really, I was fascinated by how smart he was. He navigated through tough conversations where people were trying to trap him in his own words, and he would have always have the witty comeback, the sharp rebuke, and he would look into people's lives and speak to them. He had basically an electrifying presence, and I didn't have any room for his talks about God or miracles or anything like that, but just the person was fascinating, and I was, it, 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 I was not really at ease with it. I was kind of challenged by the person that I was reading about. It's like, hey, I'm going to have to figure out who that is at some point. Um, but uh, even if I wanted to, I couldn't have ended up in the church at that time because all the weekends I was traveling around the country to play my volleyball games. 
but there's one thing that I did uh, as I picked up that Bible also. I thought, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm an engineer by now. Um, there's at least one experiment that I can run uh, to test all of this, and it's to say, well, I'm going to pray as an unbeliever. And so I did something like this. I, I don't think there's a God out there, but if there is one, I'm looking into this, so why don't you go ahead and reveal yourself to me? I'm open. Which is just a dangerous prayer. <laughs> as, it, as it turned out. Yeah. Um, but um, I... Yeah, I don't think I was open, but I thought it wouldn't stop God if uh, he existed. Uh, and so I kind of make this blanket invitation. But like I said, I, even if I wanted to visit a church, I couldn't really have gone in there because on the weekends I was traveling all around the country to play volleyball games. Uh, and as it turned out, just a couple of weeks after I prayed that unbelieving prayer, out of the blue, uh, my shoulders started to fail me. Um, I had no accident or anything like that, but there was just an injury that's kind of spontaneous, uh, where 10 minutes into every volleyball game, um, my shoulder was inflamed and I couldn't spike. And so I was useless on the, on the field. The doctors couldn't really see what was going on. The physical therapist tried to help and it didn't really do anything for me. And I was told, Guillaume, we don't know what's going on. You just need to stop volleyball for a few weeks. You need to rest your shoulder and then we'll see how it goes. And so I did that against my will now. I was off of volleyball courts. And I thought, well, I've been looking into this Christianity thing. I'm now free on Sundays. I'm going to go and see what those Christians do when they get together. Um, and so, Drink Kool-Aid and stuff yeah, like that, mostly. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. on that first Sunday morning without a volleyball game, I, took, I got in my car and I drove to Paris to a church, that, an evangelical church that I knew would be somewhat similar to what my girlfriend would have attended and described as her religion. And so I went there, and the way I describe it is I say that I went, like, I went there like I go to the zoo to see some weird animals that I've never seen in real life, um, that I've maybe heard about or seen in books, but to see them in real life. Um, and, uh, and I got to that church, and the whole experience was very uncomfortable. Um, I felt very awkward because you have to understand, I, I felt like even my presence in the building was an intellectual crime that I didn't believe any of the stuff that they did, but the simple fact that I was even contemplating it by being there, I thought if any of my family or friends could see me there in a church, I would die of shame. So I was very awkward in there, and I just walked to the front and sat down. Um, the people were praying also. It was kind of strange. It felt like they, they thought there was actually a God on the other side of those prayers, uh, which was very new to me. So it's genuinely, they seemed to be genuinely believing this stuff. And I, I sat down and, and I watched. I really made a connection with the musicians because uh, I was a keyboard player and they played really well. And this was like drums and good music. And it wasn't exactly the pipe organs of my childhood. Um, but then the preacher preached, and I know this is going to kill you inside, but uh, I don't remember a single word that the preacher said that day. Standard, yeah. This All never happens to you, though. Every weekend. Okay, okay yeah, every weekend. Yeah, okay. it's a, it's bad when it's your own family, though. You <laughs> know, we correct. go out to lunch, and I go, "What do you think about the sermon?" They go, uh -huh. "Jesus was great in that part. They love the G." Yeah, you don't remember any? No, don't remember any of it. So well, that happens. Yep. In my case, it was probably because I was so absorbed in my own thoughts and being self-conscious of being there. But I just don't remember a thing he said. But I remember, okay, I've seen enough. I understand what this is about. I understand what they're doing. Now I need to escape before anybody comes and introduces themselves to me so that I don't have to talk to any of those weirdos. Yeah. Um, 
And so I jumped on my feet, uh, and I needed to walk all the way back to the back door of the church to leave. Uh, so I, I did that, trying to not make eye contact yeah, with I, anybody. I see, I see those people every week. It's my favorite people. They come <laughs> in. They're like, I'll come in during second song, and I'll come in, and I'll shoot, and I just... And so, so this is what I attempted, um, and I successfully walked all the way back to the back door of the church to leave. Um, and I opened the door, and I literally had one foot out the door when I was stopped by a big blast of chills in my stomach that went up in my chest and grabbed me by the throat, and I was frozen on the doorstep. And I heard myself thinking, this is ridiculous, I have to figure this out. And so I turned around, I closed the door, and I went straight to the head pastor. So, you believe in God, huh? <laughs> it's like, yes. Uh, how does this work? Uh, and he said, well, I'd be happy to talk with you about it if you want to visit me in my office. You know, make, let's make an appointment and we'll discuss this. And I did. Uh, and I took him up on that. And so you probably came with some questions. I came with questions, uh, objections. I explained to him why I was even looking into this, right? This, the story with that girlfriend from uh, the, the islands and... Um, try to make sense of Christianity and try to understand what it's even about. Um, and he walked me through this. We had a wonderful conversation. I kind of unpacked some of my objections. And um, like we had a full discussion that night. I forgot to eat. <laughs> it was so, so captivating. Um, I've never been that captivated yeah. before. But yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So this was a wonderful conversation. And he gave me one, a, a little booklet that he had written to walk you through the first steps of the Christian uh, faith. Um, that was asking questions and then giving you verses in the Bible for you to go and look up the answers yourself. Uh, so I thought that was a very good format. Uh, I went home and I did this very consciously. I was like, okay, I get this, let me go. Oh, I see the answer, I write. Oh, that I don't understand, let me write a question. So I, I kind of prepare lots of questions that I could bring to him to discuss uh, the next time we would meet. Um, and on those notes, uh, there's, there's questions everywhere, uh, but there's one question that I saw, I went back to those notes written in French years later, and I saw there's one question that comes back every page, and it is, why did Jesus have to die? It made no sense. I could not understand at the time what was the connection between Jesus dying on the cross 2,000 years ago and my life as a Christian if I were to become one. I, it didn't, I didn't see the connection, and so you can see that question all over my notes. And the answer of that question would come soon. Um, but in that season of conversations with that pastor, what happens is that there's a number of my mental objections, intellectual objections to Christianity, that kind of fell apart. And I realized I was wrong, and I changed my mind on the key number of issues about that. So I, I can list yeah. some of those. Yep. Uh, the, the first one is, first, I thought that you needed to be absolutely silly or insane to believe in the supernatural. Um, and, and here, just the very existence of that pastor kind of put that belief uh, to the test because here was somebody sitting across from me who clearly had his head together. He didn't have anything to compensate for. He was clearly intelligent, educated, and yet he believed that God created the universe and that Jesus was risen from the dead. And I, I couldn't put the two together. So that gives some uh, aspect of credibility, and obviously it didn't make Christianity true, but at least I realized, okay, maybe I won't have to check my brain at the door if I have to believe those things. So there was kind of a challenge that you don't have to be stupid to be a Christian. Um, the, I know, it, it, to me, see, this, this is funny that this makes you laugh, but it was really deeply seated in my culture that this was the case, and to just be disabused of that belief was 
quite significant. So that was the first thing that I, I really came to reappreciate. Really the second was my view of relationships and uh, sexual ethics from the Christian life. I was under the impression that Christian teaching was extremely repressive, that it was anti-sex, that it was just, just a hatred of the, of the flesh, um, and that it was intolerant for Christians to say that they should only marry other believers. And so that, that actually, the first objection about belief and, you know, not being crazy. I don't, there's obviously an air of that in our culture for sure, but that second obstacle to faith about sexual ethics, that seems to be the one that our culture struggles with the most um, when it comes to either individual sexual ethics, like sex before marriage and divorce and the LGBTQ community. And how do we, how do we think about all these big issues? That seems to be the biggest stumbling block for a lot of people, especially uh, um, today in our culture. And so that was, that was something you were having to wrestle with. Yeah. And, and once again, it, it wasn't directly a question of whether Christianity is true, but it was a question of whether Christianity is good, right? That, is it even livable? Is that a good description of, of sexual ethics? And now the pastor walked me through this kind of patiently and brilliantly, I thought. Um, he painted this picture of the fact that no, uh, sex is a gift from God on Christian premises, that it is something that he's made for our good, that it's a wonderful thing to enjoy. Yes, within marriage, right, a lifelong commitment, so there were boundaries. And um, I didn't want this, I didn't like this, but at least internally it seemed to be consistent that if God created it, he would be in a good position to tell us the good conditions to enjoy it. Um, and so we started to paint a little bit more of a prettier picture of more conservative sexual ethics. And in my position, I mean, I had a pretty bad track record of basically sowing like carnage in my relationships. I had cheated on all of my girlfriends, caused tremendous amount of pain. And while I didn't feel too guilty about those things, I knew this was not great. And somehow there was something touching about the picture he was painting of he, he said that he didn't even kiss his wife until they were married. Like at the altar, they had their first kiss. And I thought that is absolute madness. But, but there was something beautiful about this, that they had their first kiss after the traditional words, you may kiss the bride, and then they kissed, and then they were together forever. And I didn't want this, but he painted a pretty picture that made me relax a little bit, saying, yeah, this is not crazy. This is, this is beautiful. Okay. Uh, so there was that, and then the idea that we should only marry a believer, that just made good sense uh, on, upon reflecting on this. I mean, if God is the most important thing in your life, and you're going to make all of your big decisions thinking about God and his will for your life, if your spouse thinks that this is nonsense, that's not going to go very far as a marriage, right? So I came to appreciate it's not intolerance, it's just good practical sense. And were you able to, while you were investigating Christianity, were you able to identify, hey, these are barriers to belief? So a lot of us think that we're just neutral and, you know, we are reasonable and so we just see what is true and what's not true. Were you able to say, no, there's some reasons why I don't want Christianity to be true. Were you able to be that honest with yourself? I, I did. I saw there was those influence factor. I even made like a kind of a two columns on the page uh, writing down, okay, what's in it for me if I were to become a Christian? What's in it if I don't? What do I have to sacrifice? And just to weigh the costs. And I briefly realized that actually none of these are even relevant to whether it's true. So I, wouldn't, I, I tried my very best to not make my decision based upon what would be good or in it for me, but really just, is it true? Um, so that, that, was, that was an important part to recognize that, yeah, I have desires here. I am not neutral, but I have to check them out because that's not relevant to whether it's true. 
Um, so on the, the issue of truth, that's another barrier that fell down in my conversations. Uh, I was under the impression that uh, science had disproven God, uh, that if I believed in science, then I should not believe that God exists. Um, and for that one, I simply took stock of kind of all of my scientific knowledge. I had studied engineering, physics, chemistry, math, and I kind of looked at what I knew and realized none of this refutes God's existence. Um, you know, it could well be that whatever knowledge of physics and the laws of nature I know could be simply designed by God. He's created this world to operate among, along those lines, uh, and that would be completely compatible with everything I knew about the universe. Um, but of all my knowledge, very little was even relevant to God's existence. So I realized I don't really have a scientific case against God that somehow is holding me back. Later on, uh, many years later, I discovered that there's actually some scientific reasons to believe that God does exist. But at least for the time being, I concluded that I didn't have reasons from science to think that he doesn't exist. Okay. So that was, that was an important piece. The other expectation I had with science was that somehow I needed science to prove God because that's where you get knowledge. Uh, I was under the impression that everything we know comes from science, so if science doesn't tell us that God exists, then we cannot possibly know that. So it's like a scientism. Yep. It's like almost a worship of science that everything can be known Yeah, so, so that's the, the technical name for this idea that knowledge only comes from science. Right. Uh, and there, I also realized this was an incoherent standard. Uh, first of all, because I saw there's lots of things that I know and that yet that don't come from science. Things that I, I have knowledge about, right? Not just faith, like just knowledge. And I'll give you a couple of examples of those things that I know apart from science. But it's even worse than this because the claim itself is self-refuting, right? It says that you can only know things from science. Well, do you know that from science? No, you don't. It's not science telling you that you should only believe things from science. So the claim itself is self-refuting. If it's true, then you shouldn't know it. So uh, I realized this is not the right standard. There's plenty of things we can know that don't come from science and that you also don't have to be absolutely certain about. And that category of beliefs, I realize, are completely trivial beliefs, but that things that we know clearly, we have knowledge of those things. And here's a few examples. I know my name. I know my date of birth. I know my place of birth. I know who my parents are. All very important things about me that I know today, right? If you ask me, hey, do you know who your parents are? I'm not telling you, well, I don't know because I don't have absolute certainty or scientific evidence, right? I, I didn't take a DNA test, but I know who my parents are. I know my name and I know my date of birth. How do I know those things? Very simply, someone who knows and is trustworthy told me. It's testimony. And I realized this is a perfectly valid way of knowing things about the world. Somebody who knows, is in a position to know, and is trustworthy, tells you, and now you know. And so I accepted that this was a reasonable standard for knowledge, and then I saw what I've been reading in the New Testament presents itself exactly like that. There are people who are telling you, we were there, we lived with Jesus, we've seen this, we were in a position to know him, we've seen him alive after he was crucified. And then we went to talk with him, we had a meal, we touched his hands, we've seen him, and we're telling you because we think you should know. Mm. That's really what it says. So how, as you're going through this, how scary was it to start to turn the corner and go, this might actually be true? It was terrifying because I clearly realized that my life would look very different if I needed to accept that. But there was clearly a shift in my mind that realized this might well be true. This is reliable. This is intellectually respectable. Um, and as I started to consider the possible truth of what I was reading, um, 
I started to shift a little bit my unbelieving prayer life, and I, I prayed to God something more like, now, God, if you're there, I'm starting to think intellectually this makes sense, but you're going to have to reveal yourself very powerfully to me so that I, I can be sure that I won't make a fool of myself if I jump the gun and actually become a Christian. Um, and what I was kind of expecting was an open heaven with lights coming from the sky uh, and saying, a big booming voice, welcome, son. Um, <laughs> and this is not what God gave me, but what he did was much more brutal. Uh, what he did is that he reactivated my conscience. And right at the time that I had uh, investigated Christianity, I had come to commit some really horrible, nasty uh, actions uh, that basically involved cheating on my girlfriend uh, once again, but with aggravating circumstances that even by my own standard, I knew this was pretty bad. Um, and somehow, obviously, I had lived in denial of the fact that I had done this. I kind of shoved it down and shoved it to the side. And in that place of seeking God, he took it and shoved it in my face. And I was crippled with guilt for that thing I had done. I have done it. I know I've done it. I can't go back. I can't clean up this mess. And I was afflicted with guilt in deep pain. And it's in that zone of pain that the question finally came from my writings. Why did Jesus have to die? Me. He died for me. He paid the penalty on the cross so that he would be able to forgive my sins. So he didn't deserve to die. He paid the price himself. And that was the penalty for my own sins so that I could be forgiven, not because I'm righteous, not because I'm good, not because I'm innocent. I was guilty. But this is the beauty of the gospel, that the perfectly righteous judge forgives the, the guilty because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so by faith, we receive that gift, not by our works. So the whole thing came to make sense of my experience. And I had seen that it was intellectually permissible, that the mind could give permission to the heart to believe. It was exactly what I needed, that forgiveness from the guilt that I had. And then so I said, yes, God, I'm all in. Uh, this is making sense. It's permissible. Save me, forgive me, and change my life. And I felt a tremendous renewal. A, like the Bible describes it as a new birth. I mean, this is really what happened. My guilt evaporated, and I knew I had encountered the living God, and he had forgiven me of my sins. It was a, a, a true freedom that came from this, and I thought this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. That's, a, that's so cool. And, <laughs> so... You know, in that moment, you're, you're born again. There's a spiritual transformation that takes place, which is all true and amazing. But you still got to deal with what's happening in real world, you know, and yeah. with life. Yeah, absolutely. So I had confessed to God, uh, but I thought I need to confess to my girlfriend now because I can't live in this life that I've been dealing with. Uh, I need to have that clean slate that the gospel promises, and it's going to have to be by confession. And so I flew back to New York. Uh, and I dropped the news of what I had done, I confessed it all, and my conscience was clear. We had a very, very difficult fight, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, she decided to still try it out and to forgive me and to move forward. So I flew back to Paris, uh, and then, I mean, basically, one of us needed to move. Um, and I spoke English, she didn't speak French. I thought, you know, God has been working out all of those very providentially in my life. It seems like he wants me to get in there. And so I understandably um, decided to move. And so I quit my job. I left my volleyball team. I quit my band. 
uh, and I looked for a job in New York. Now, in God's providence, I was working in finance, and I needed a job in New York, so I found a job on Wall Street, uh, and I moved, uh, following what I thought God was ordaining for us. And uh, after a few months of being in the U.S., it became very clear that our relationship was horrible. We would fight all the time, and clearly we were not meant to be together, and we broke up. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, when you become a Christian, everything is just smooth sailing after that, right? It's easy. <laughs> that, that's what I uh, was hopefully not expecting, but, uh, but I found myself there and kind of confused, right? I thought I was following God's steps, and then this is what I get. I, well, what is this? I, I abandoned everything, and here I am. Um, and in God's providence, this is just about the time that I started to receive questions uh, from my brother and my friends in France. Uh, asking me about my newfound faith, and I had to explain to them why I hadn't lost my mind. Um, try to tell them, like, this is what happened to me, these are some of the reasons that I've considered, and this is why I think that the message is true, and it's amazing. Um, and then their objections came back, and I needed to explain, and, and the whole thing felt very natural. It seemed like, yeah, I, I understand that question. I, I have a really good answer to this one. Oh, yeah, but this objection doesn't work, and so kind of breaking down their thing, and it seems like, hey, this feels surprisingly good. This is maybe what God is calling me to do. And so um, I enjoyed this. I continued to study and think about those issues. And I started to buy books and attend conferences and um, like look at uh, debates and uh, documentaries. Uh, and before you know it, God has isolated me in this place where I had no connections, no social engagement, no volleyball, no music, no nothing, no girlfriend. So I had my day job during the day, but all of my evenings and all of my weekends, I would just study those things and I would just eat it up and enjoy every moment of it. And after a few months of doing that with all of my time and all my resources, I thought, if I'm going to be spending all of my time doing this, I might as well get a degree out of this. And so I just applied for seminary, uh, and then I was received, and I went and got a master's in New Testament studies. Um, and then later on, I pursued this with doctoral work in uh, philosophical theology. In the interim, I also met the woman that was supposed to be my wife. Uh, she is also American, and uh, we got married, uh, started making, having a family. We now have five kids, um, and she's absolutely wonderful and better than whatever I thought I was pursuing in the first place. Yeah. And we even redeemed some of those early struggles and questions because then I decided that we would kiss uh, for the first time at the altar. And so <laughs> we had our first kiss at the altar, and uh, we, so we have, we have our family. Um, and you know, I became uh, engaged with my doctoral work, so writing articles and books and speaking and debating. And so it's kind of the, the big headlines of how God takes a French atheist who hates God and hates religion, breaks all of his intellectual defenses, reveals the gospel to him, changes his life, keeps it upside down, and makes a Christian theologian out of him. <laughs> That's amazing. That's cool. Um, we'll, we only have a couple minutes left, and so I just want to ask you a few questions. Um, maybe there's some people here who are, you know, not too sure about faith, about God, about Jesus, um, or they at least have some friends and family members. What are some resources that you could point them towards to maybe help think through some of those questions? Yeah, so uh, in the English language, you guys have plenty of resources of good philosophers and apologists who defend many of the big claims of the Christian faith. So folks like William Lane Craig and his ministry, Reasonable Faith, is a great resource um, on arguments from the fine-tuning of the universe. I like Luke Barnes uh, as an Australian cosmologist, astrophysicist, who is really good on this. Um, 
I would recommend resources on the uh, reliability of the New Testament and the uh, Gospels. The kind of the, the explanation I give you of seeing the New Testament Gospels as testimony, um, like reliable testimony, and being able to know that Jesus did all those things and was risen from the dead. There's lots of great material on that. I would recommend the work by Lydia McGrew. Mm -hmm. uh, she wrote a book called Testimonies to the Truth. It's a wonderful book that kind of unpacks how we can take the Gospels as reliable testimony. So these are all great resources that I would recommend on that. And then my own book, The Confessions of a French Atheist, tells you my story of conversion with all the entertaining aspects of just the life change, but it's also peppered with all of those big questions that I have encountered as part of my reflections, and so it's kind of half story, half apologetics, and discussions of these arguments. Uh, so this is a good resource to equip people who have questions. Yeah, so uh, I think a question you've gotten a lot this weekend is, hey, what's the best way for me to speak to friends and family about Jesus who might be similar to yourself? Yeah, so there's, there's several things that the, the pastor in France did really well in discussing with me. Um, so one of those is that he neither compromised on his beliefs nor judged me for disagreeing. Um, clearly, he thought that was, I was living immorally in my relationships with women, but never really condemned me for it, just presented a different picture that was compelling. Uh, so I thought that was helpful. Um, and then addressing the intellectual objections uh, throughout those conversations, uh, that was really an important part because the mind needs to give permission to the heart to believe. I said, if, if you're suspecting that deep down what you're embracing is nonsense. I mean, there's only so much that your emotions are gonna carry you through. So it's important to have that intellectual foundations and addressing objections, reading on why there are good reasons for believing what we believe is, is an important part. And then the last piece is that, yeah, it's not all intellectual, uh, that there's clearly an experiential aspect to this. Um, the Bible says that if you, you, know, you believe that God is one, you do well. Well, the demons believe this much. What else do you get? Um, and th there's a change of heart that comes in conversion, and this is what a truly saving faith does. It's going to be a, a change of heart, a change of emotions that leads you to love God. And this is sometimes people have a trouble connecting the love of God with uh, their own experience. And Jesus connects the love of God with our forgiveness of sin uh, in what is probably my favorite parable, the parable of the two debtors where Jesus says there's some guy who lent money to two people, one he lent 50, the other one 500, and neither of them could repay, and he forgave the debt. And which one do you think is going to love the money lender more? And the Pharisee who was there said, well, clearly the one who owed more, and Jesus says exactly right. The one who owes more is going to love him more. And look at this sinful woman. She's been pouring on my feet, washing my feet, pouring oil on me. She's been kissing my feet. And you have been very cold and you haven't offered water for my feet. You haven't really been uh, nice to me. And he says, well, she's been forgiven a lot and she loves a lot and you don't. And so this is kind of my takeaway from this and my own experience is that uh, whoever loves much, uh, whoever has been forgiven much, loves much, and I love much. Mm, that's good. Last question. Have you had In-N-Out yet? Yes, I have. Yes, I am. I, I, and, and I'll validate that. Yes, animal style is working for me. So okay. Good. <laughs> okay, perfect. Why don't you pray for us and then we'll get going. That sounds good. All right. Father, I give you thanks for uh, your providential work in our heart uh, that you save us. Uh, whether we seek you or don't seek you, you are sovereign and your Holy Spirit changes lives. 
I pray that you give hope um, to all in this room who are witnessing to people who might be in my former situation, no interest for God and hostility towards religion. I pray that once your Holy Spirit would move in their lives, would break down their barriers and bring them to faith, Lord. Um, you desire to save them. I pray that you would do so and give hope and uh, use the people in this room to bring this truth to them, the ministry that they would be hoping, praying, preaching. Um, and love, I, Lord, I pray that uh, you would increase our love for you, um, that uh, just as we've been forgiven much, we would love much. Uh, I'm not praying that people would sin more so that they would love you more, but I pray that they would take a good look at their own condition and find the gratefulness that they have been forgiven. I pray that this would result in more glory to you who brings us this forgiveness. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday morning. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.